Good morning, church. Can we pray? Thank you, Lord, so much for your presence here with us. Will you open our hearts, minds, and spirits to receive from you this morning? We just look forward to learning, experiencing more of you and all the, uh, the incredible things that you have for us. Amen. Well, um, just before I launch in by way of a bit of background, um, many of you will be aware that um, I've been operating as a, a speaker for Creation Ministries International for the last uh, year and a bit. And while this morning isn't a, um, specifically a, a creation talk, it, it very much has its roots in the, the book of Genesis. So uh, you, could, uh, you could say that I've got my CMI hat half on this morning. And I'm, I'm really actually quite excited about this talk. It was not the topic I was originally planning on. Um, then the idea of a look at the uh, origin of suffering came in, and all of these ideas just started to pour in and flow. I could, I could barely keep up with it. So I felt that was a sign that God was, was behind it. And also as I started constructing the talk, I found that it went in a, in a direction that was really not what I was expecting at all. So again, I'm taking that as a sign that uh, this is what God wants me to do this morning. So excited about it. Let's, let's see how it plays out. <laughs> so when the top topic of suffering comes up, usually God gets the blame. Is that fair? Let's find out. Today, as we take a look at the issue of suffering, you're going to learn a highly effective cough treatment, what theodicy is, and the link between the Garden of Eden and heaven. Now, as I researched this topic, I found, I discovered something about suffering. I discovered that a particular combination of factors will almost always result in suffering. And that combination is men, motorbikes, and an audience. <laughs> Often it starts really well with some impressive performances. <laughs> But sooner or later, confidence exceeds ability, <laughs> and suffering results. <laughs> Men, motorbikes, and an audience, always worth a look. Suffering is a really big topic, which I believe can be split into two issues. Firstly, the impact of suffering and the origin of suffering. And today I want to focus mainly on one of those, the origin of suffering. And I also want to deal with a couple of misconceptions. Firstly, that the uh, existence of suffering is difficult to explain. And secondly, that death and suffering are normal and a natural part of God's plan for us. And many people give inspiring stories about uh, showing how to endure through suffering. Sorry, that's not my aim today. I'm not going to give you a story of overcoming uh, adversity or a, a powerful testimony of triumph over great suffering. And I don't speak as someone who has suffered terribly in this life, only the things that we all suffer. What I do want to do is to focus on the origin of suffering and also the end of suffering. I simply want to present what God says about this. So you're getting a lot of Bible this morning. So why even talk about the topic of suffering? 
Well, the issue of the existence of suffering, and in particular, how there can be a loving God with all the suffering we see around us, is a really important question. This question is raised by skeptics looking for ways to discredit and misrepresent God, but it's also raised as a genuine question by those seeking or investigating God. In either case, we need to have a good understanding and good answers, but particularly for the second group, the seekers, where our input could either help or hinder them on their journey towards Jesus. It's really important that we be able to give a logical, biblical answer around the existence of suffering because it's probably the second most common objection to Christianity given by non-Christians. So is suffering a difficult topic? Yes and no. When the topic of suffering comes up, people often um and ah and say, well, it's a tricky one. I have to admit, this winds me up a little bit. In one sense, yes, it's a difficult topic because it affects us all, sometimes dramatically. But in terms of why we suffer, it's not difficult at all. The Bible lays it out very clearly. And it's a great opportunity to present the biblical history and the gospel. In fact, if we didn't experience suffering in this life, I would be forced to reject the Bible as untrue. The existence of suffering now is completely consistent with what the Bible teaches us. And suffering should actually be a great witnessing topic. Having said that, I run the risk today of being seen as insensitive to the suffering that people experience, which for some is extreme and incredibly hard to bear. That's why I'm trying to be very clear that I'm not primarily focused today on the impact of suffering. My intent is that we all be very clear on the start and the finish of suffering and, and to hopefully view it through a biblical lens. So having gone to great lengths to explain that this talk is not focused on the impact of suffering, I do have one disturbing story that I want to share. A pharmacist, let's call her Chris, <laughs> entered her pharmacy one afternoon and was surprised to see a customer leaning heavily against the wall, holding his stomach and groaning. She approached the pharmacist on duty, let's call him Alan, <laughs> and whispered, what's wrong with him? Alan replied that the customer had come in with a cough, but because they were out of cough syrup, Alan had given him a full bottle of laxatives. <laughs> Unable to believe her ears and struggling to maintain her composure, Chris hissed at Alan, are you crazy? You can't treat a cough with a bottle of laxatives. Alan calmly replied, of course you can. Look at him, he's way too scared to cough. <laughs> Any similarity in that story to real people is entirely coincidental. <laughs> so apart from a pharmacist called Alan, what is the origin of suffering? <laughs> the origin of suffering is not difficult to determine if we take the Bible as written. We read in the book of Genesis about God creating the universe, and at the end of each day's work of creating, he looked at what he had made and declared it to be good. At the end of the sixth day, when he had finished creating, he surveyed all that he had made and declared it to be very good. There is no hint here of the existence of any kind of suffering at all. I would suggest to you that if God calls something very good, it's pretty amazing. 
Genesis 1, 29 to 30 tells us that everyone, human and animals, are vegetarian at this point. No one is eating anyone else. And we see in Genesis 2, 16, 17 that God not only gave Adam and Eve an incredible environment to live in, he also gave them extremely wide-ranging permission to enjoy it to the max. There's only one restriction. Imagine that. There's parenting made easy. You can do anything you like except one thing. You can eat from any tree in the garden except one. It's all going incredibly well until Satan enters the picture in Genesis chapter 3, which has been described as the most tragic chapter in the Bible. Satan launches his attack, and sadly Adam and Eve fall for his deception and lies. Satan appears in the form of a snake, and his attack follows what will become a very familiar pattern. Satan does three things. He misrepresents God, he denies that there will be any penalty for disobedience, and he casts doubt on God's goodness. Let's dig into that a little bit. Genesis 3, 1 to 5. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So observe Satan's tactics shown in these verses. Firstly, Satan misquotes God. Genesis 3.1, Satan said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said. He said they could eat from any tree in the garden except one. Secondly, he denies the penalty for disobedience. Genesis 3.4, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. A complete lie, as we'll soon discover. Thirdly, he casts doubt on God's goodness. Genesis 3.5, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Satan suggests that God is not good and is in fact withholding something good from Adam and Eve. Doubt is one of Satan's greatest weapons. He even tried to use doubt when he tempted Jesus and said, if you are the son of God. Take note here. We need to understand Satan's tactics in the Garden of Eden because it's exactly the same approach he continues to take today. Chances are you've experienced this. He misrepresents God, he denies that there is any penalty for sin, and he casts doubt on God's goodness. So this brings us to a defining moment in Genesis 3.6, which tells us, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some of it to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That simple act, known as the fall, described in one sentence, dramatically changed not only the course of human history, but impacted the entire universe. The impact of their disobedience is extremely wide-ranging. 
and includes the following. Firstly, increased pain for women in childbirth. Genesis 3.16, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labour, you'll give birth to children. I wasn't brave enough to do a joke around that one. <laughs> Secondly, a breakdown in human relationships. Genesis 3.16 again. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Thirdly, the pleasant task of managing the beautiful garden Eden changes so that producing food requires hard work and is a constant battle against weeds. Genesis 3, 17 to 19, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. Number four, physical death is now inevitable for Adam and Eve and all their descendants. Genesis 3:19. till you return to the ground, for out of it you were, t- you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Number five, animals die to clothe Adam and Eve. Genesis 3:21. and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Number six, Adam and Eve are banished from Eden. Genesis 3, 23 to 24. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Continues. Number seven. Adam and all his descendants now get to experience evil. Remember the tree they ate from was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the original creation, God knew evil in the same way as an oncologist knows about cancer, by knowledge about it, not by personal experience. But after Adam and Eve sinned, they knew evil in the same way a cancer sufferer knows about cancer, by sad personal experience. Number eight, the whole universe is damaged and subject to ongoing decay. Romans 8, 21 to 22. The creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. The COVID pandemic we are now experiencing is simply one of the manifestations of living in a broken world. It may surprise you to hear that most viruses are good for you. You might have heard that there are as many bacteria in and on your body as there are cells in your body, which is true. But it's also true that you have more viruses in your gut than bacteria. The viral population, or virome, plays an important role in regulating the number and types of bacteria in your body. Without them, we might be rapidly consumed by the hungry little bacteria that live in our intestines. So viruses were originally all good. But like so many other things that were originally good, viruses have also become broken since the fall and can now be the cause of massive problems. Number nine, Adam and all his descendants, you and I, acquire a sin nature. Romans 5.12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. This is a really important concept. I want to spend a little bit of time on this idea that all humans acquired a sin nature. This means that we no longer have the ability not to sin. 
Psalm 51.5, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. And some excerpts from Romans 7.15-18, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Understand this. We don't get our sin nature by sinning. We sin because we already have a sin nature inherited from Adam and Eve. Can you see the difference? And incidentally, when we talk about innocent little children, that's theologically incorrect. Babies are sinful even before they've done anything. We are all tainted with sin from conception. It's hereditary. So you can see that the results of Adam and Eve's disobedience, or the fall, are enormous, wide-ranging, and include the introduction of the pain and suffering that we now all experience to varying degrees. Ultimately, physical death. So all of this shows us very clearly that the origin of suffering is not God. It's humans. Now, a side issue that I'll touch on very briefly is the issue of long ages, millions or billions of years of Earth history versus the biblical age of the Earth of around 6,000 years. I've said that the origin of suffering is easy to explain if we take the biblical text at face value, and that's true. The opposite is also true. If we attempt to squeeze long ages into the book of Genesis, despite its clear meaning, we create for ourselves a problem because we are then forced to place death and suffering before the fall of Adam and Eve. And therefore the fall can no longer be the cause of suffering and the Bible's big picture collapses. There are various ideas that attempt to reconcile the Bible with the long ages proposed by secular science, but every one of them places death and suffering before the fall of Adam and Eve and so undermine the clear teaching of Genesis and the Bible's big picture. We often illustrate the problem with this image of a supposedly very good Garden of Eden sitting on top of a fossil record depicting death and suffering. It doesn't fit with the biblical origin of suffering but instead places the origin of death and suffering before the fall. And in case you're tempted to go down this path, you need to know that the secular case for long ages is not strong. And in fact, the majority of the scientific evidence supports the Bible and a young earth. So I repeat, the origin of suffering is not God. It's humans. I could finish there, but I preached to the cat this morning and she lasted the distance, so I'm sure you can. Plus, if we follow this track a little bit further, we discover some amazing truths and some really, really good news. First up, how do we reconcile suffering with a loving God? We learn at a very early age that there are all sorts of things on this planet just waiting to smack us on the head. My grandson learned this the hard way recently. He thought that a plastic washing basket could be trusted. Apparently not. He's still wondering what hit him. (laughs) So do we settle for a vindictive God just looking for an opportunity to smite us? No, that's not biblical. Now, in one sense, 
We don't need to reconcile suffering with a loving God because, as we've seen, he didn't cause suffering. We did. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Yes, God is outside of time, and so he knew beforehand that the fall would occur, but that doesn't mean that he made it happen. Foreknowledge is not the same thing as causality. But a couple of thoughts around this. Let's engage in a bit of theodicy. Theodicy means vindication of God. It's answering the question of why a good God permits the manifestation of evil. The first thought around this is is the power of contrary choice. What on earth is the power of contrary choice, you ask? Dr. Jonathan Safadi explains, God created Adam and Eve, as well as the angels, with the power of contrary choice. This means that they had the power to make a choice contrary to their own nature. Even God doesn't have this power, for he cannot sin and go against his perfectly holy nature. The power of contrary choice was a good, with no actual evil, but it meant that there was the possibility of evil. But evidently God saw that a greater good would come from it. For example, that the result would be creatures who genuinely love God freely. Actually, real love must be free. If I program my computer to flash, I love you on the screen, it's hardly genuine love. But Adam's misuse of this good, not the good thing itself, resulted in actual evil befalling him and the rest of the material creation over which he had dominion. As a result of his sin, Adam and his descendants acquired a sin nature and lost the power of contrary choice. But in this case, it now meant that they could no longer go against their sin nature. Enough theodicy. This leads us to the second thought. If we don't have the ability not to sin, why does God hold us accountable for our sin? Well, God is just. He can't not be. It's his very nature. Psalm 89, 14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Isaiah 61, 8, For I, the Lord, love justice. Jeremiah 9, 24, I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. Because God is just, sin must have a penalty. And the extent of the penalty must be in proportion to the extent of the sin. As descendants of Adam, we are born with a massive problem. We are unable not to sin, and sin carries a huge penalty because it's such an affront to a God who is totally holy. We have a huge problem. But incredibly, God conceived an amazing plan that allows him to retain his just nature and save us from the penalty of our sin. Nicky Gumbel of Alpha fame explains it really well with the story of two friends who are close during their childhood, but as they grow, they take very different paths. One studies, becomes a lawyer, and eventually a judge. The other falls into a life of crime, is caught, convicted, and ends up in front of his childhood friend, the judge, for sentencing. The judge has a dilemma. He loves his old friend, but he must uphold the law and deliver justice. This is the same dilemma that God faced. He loves us, but he has to be just. So what does the judge do? 
he delivers justice. He finds his friend, the criminal, $50,000. He then steps down from the bench, takes off his legal regalia, writes out a cheque for $50,000, and offers it to his friend. I'm sure you can see the parallel to what Jesus did for us when he went to the cross in our place and paid the penalty for us. He paid a penalty so big, we could never pay it anyway. Now, like all analogies, it's imperfect. The penalty that we owed which was much greater, and it cost Jesus not some money, but everything. 1 Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. But what a plan. What an incredible God. Absolute genius. Able to retain his perfect, holy, just nature and to remove from us a penalty that we owed. Able to be just and merciful. Dilemma solved. Perfectly. Beautifully, completely. Hebrews 10.10 describes the results. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And 1 Corinthians 15.54-57. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. What a God we serve. So what is the biblical perspective on our experience of suffering and death? Let's deal with death first. As I said at the beginning, I want to spell the myth that death is somehow normal and part of God's original plan. Biblically, this is really clear. The New Testament calls death the last enemy and the wages of sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The Bible is consistent throughout in linking death to sin, which was not part of the original creation. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Romans 5, 12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. There was no death in God's original creation and there will be no death in his restored creation. So it should be obvious that death is not a natural or integral part of his plan. The prophet Isaiah describes God's restored creation. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord. So death is an intruder not a normal and natural part of God's plan for us. Secondly, what is the biblical perspective on the experience of suffering? Amazingly, the Bible describes our present sufferings, as bad as they can be, as almost insignificant compared to what we will experience in heaven. 
2 Corinthians 4.17, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Paul is telling us here that the intense joy we will experience in heaven and the eternal duration of it will make our earthly sufferings seem inconsequential. How good must heaven be? Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Whatever we suffer in this life, it is more than compensated by heaven. Now, obviously, when suffering comes, it can be very hard to endure and can be a real struggle for us, but it should never cause us to doubt God's reality or his goodness. That's why it's so important that we have a biblical understanding of this issue. If we don't, and if we buy into a theology that says, God will make my life on this planet easy, then we can so easily have our faith shaken when hard times come and end up drifting away. So when will suffering end? And for whom? The Bible not only explains the origin of suffering, but also offers the answer, the way out, the end of suffering. And there is an end for those who choose it. This world will one day be restored to a state in which once again there will be no violence, suffering and death. Isaiah 11, 6-9 describes this. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Many Christians are unaware that our eternal destination is a return to what God created originally a recreation of Eden, essentially. Dr. Randy Alcorn points out, God has never given up on his original creation, yet somehow we've managed to overlook an entire biblical vocabulary that makes this point clear. Redeem, restore, recover, return, renew, resurrect. Each of these biblical words begins with the re prefix, suggesting a return to an original condition that was ruined or lost. God always sees us in the light of what he intended us to be, and he always seeks to restore us to that design. Likewise, he sees the earth in terms of what he intended it to be, and he seeks to restore it to its original design. Dr. Safadi adds, In the eternal state, redeemed humanity, having been purified by Christ, will no longer even have the potential for sin. So in this sense, the eternal state with the new creation of the new heavens and the new earth will be even better than Eden. In summary, he says, Adam and Eve were created with the ability not to sin. After the fall, humans had no ability not to sin. In the eternal state, humans will have no ability to sin. So God makes an offer to us all way out. He solved the dilemma when Jesus went to the cross. Remember the two friends, the judge and the criminal? The judge offered his friend the $50,000 check, 
but he didn't force him to accept it. His friend had to choose to accept the payment with the faith that having done so, the cheque would be honoured and he would be able to go free. God's offer of payment in full is made to each one of us. We read before in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the verse continues, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 5.18, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. So it's up to us to receive this incredible gift. And the way to receive this gift is belief and faith. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Belief and faith. Firstly, belief that we are sinful and need a saviour. All of us need a saviour. Isaiah 53, 6, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one has turned to our own way. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Secondly, belief that Jesus is that saviour who paid the penalty for us. Isaiah 53, 6, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 2 Timothy 1, 10, our saviour Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And thirdly, belief that he conquered death, first for himself and then also for us. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 22, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Belief, then faith. Faith that the cross was effective and that Jesus will bring us home to be with him in a restored, renewed creation forever. Romans 8, 1 to 2. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. When you take that step of faith, your debt, your personal penalty, is paid in full. Romans 10.9 If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Nothing more needs to be paid. Nothing more can be paid. Nothing we can do can add to Jesus' sacrifice. That's why on the cross he said, it's finished. So to conclude, I hope you're really clear now that the origin of death and suffering was Adam and Eve's disobedience at the fall, that humans are responsible for the existence of suffering, not God. But God has still graciously stepped in and provided a means of escape into such a glorious future that our present sufferings, no matter how bad, will seem insignificant. And all we have to do to be certain of experiencing that incredible future is to say to him, sorry, 
Thank you. And please. Sorry is acknowledging our sinfulness, our need of him, and turning away from our old life. Thank you is thanking him for paying our debt for us. And please is asking his spirit to come and live in us until we experience him fully in a restored creation, completely devoid of any kind of pain or suffering at all. Sorry, thank you, please. If you haven't done that yet, please consider it. Please think about it. You could do it today. There isn't a more important decision and an incredible future awaits. That future is described in 1 Corinthians 2.9. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. This verse tells us that even that, that we are incapable, even in our imagination, of understanding how good heaven will be. If this has whetted your appetite, the Creation Ministries website, creation.com, has many resources and articles dealing with this topic. A couple that I would recommend are Why Does a Good God Allow Bad Things and Design Death and Suffering. They're both available in DVD format or video download from creation.com. I want to finish with Revelation 21, 1-4, which describes that amazing restored, recreated, renewed creation, our future eternal home. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Finally, I want us to listen to a song and take some time to marinate on that idea that our earthly troubles are light and momentary when compared to our eternal future with Jesus. And that in the meantime, he promises to walk the journey with us, never to leave us or forsake us. Now maybe you are really struggling with some form of suffering today and if you'd like someone to encourage you to stand with you to pray with you to invite God into your situation would you come down the front while the song is playing and there are people who would love to do that for you and if you've never accepted the cheque if you'd never said, sorry, thank you, please, and accepted that gift that we've all been offered, complete forgiveness, freedom, 
or if you just if you'd like to do that today or if you'd even just like to talk to someone about it also come down the front there'll be people who would love to have that conversation with you help you and encourage you and pray with you